Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back January Writing Challenge edition of the 7am Novelist. I am Michelle Hoover, your host. This month, we're live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work they want to write and how they might overcome those roadblocks. So today we get to hear from two wonderful writers and friends, Cowell Brown and Crystal King. Good morning, you two. Thank you so much for being on the show. Morning, Michelle. Good morning. Cowell Brown's debut novel, We Pretty Pieces of Flesh. And I'm going to say the title of that novel game because I think it's a kick-ass title. And I'm sure it's a kick-ass book. We Pretty Pieces of Flesh will be published next spring by Henry Holt in North America, Chateau and Windus in the UK and the Commonwealth, and Solerio in the Italian translation. And Crystal King is the best-selling author of The Chef's Secret and The Feast of Sorrow and the forthcoming novel In the Garden of Monsters, which is also a very cool title. And The Garden of Monsters will be out in September 24th. So both of these writers have books that are coming out soon, which is very exciting for me. So, um, and hopefully, I haven't talked to them yet, but hopefully we'll interview them this summer as well and they can talk more, even more about their books. Okay, everyone. Um, I can probably take a couple more questions from folks. So if you still want to send them, you can. So you can send them in the written form or the much preferred audio form so that we actually hear your voice. So feel free to um, shoot them our way and we'll see if we can fit them in. Uh, We've also started a Facebook page which has surprisingly blossomed really big and really fast. So I will put the uh, web address for that page on the Substack notes as well. Feel free also to uh, participate in the chat. So you can feel free to echo our listeners' issues. Um, You can also offer any suggestions of your own or resources of your own so that we have kind of a a hive mind approach to them. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about something pretty difficult, and that is the climax of a book and the ending of a book. And how do you do them? Because they can be very, very hard. So here, let's start with Chital. And Chital um, is talking about dealing with climax. Here we go. Hi, my name is Chital, and um, I have a question about climax. So I'm writing a book um, since four years, and I've been revising it over and over. And recently, um, I had a beta reader uh, read through the whole book and he said that he was disappointed with the climax. He he loved the momentum which uh, with which the book began, and then he loved the middle parts as well. And but he said that he did not like the climax. Um, he wanted to see something else, and I could relate to it because uh, after a few days, I was like, I, I I wanted to experiment with a different kind of climax because uh, the early one didn't feel true to me as well. So. I'm at the point where I am rewriting my climax, and but the question that I have is like, how you you begin with a certain momentum uh, when you start a story, and how do you keep that momentum alive when you're ending uh, the story, and how do you uh, know that you're right, ending the right way uh, when you're right finishing the story? Excellent. Okay, this is a really common question, and Chital, the most important thing that I like to hear is that not only did you get feedback from a beta reader but that that feedback um, 
exposed or echoed something that you were already thinking and feeling about your climate. So it wasn't just one person that had an issue with it, but that you yourself had been feeling um, a problem with it as well. So we also had a question in writing from Dolores, and this is somewhat similar. It's about the ending of the book. She says, I am writing the ending of my second book, an historical fiction about little discussed slavery in New England. My protagonist is a slave who wants to get free. I want to go out with a bang, steer into the skid, touch the bear. I've not written with wrists like that before. Please give some pointers on how to knock Raider's socks off with a memorable, memorable, I really can't talk today, memorable, 7 charged, I know, memorable, charged ending. Okay, I'm going to let people who actually can talk in the English language start us off. Um, Coel, what do you think? What's Have you, have you, had any problems dealing with your uh, endings and climaxes, or have they just rolled off and been super easy for you? Oh yeah, piece of piss, piece of piss. No, okay. um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> immediately lapsed into the vernacular. Um, I think it was you prom over promising that I was actually going to speak in English. It made me go straight to the Yorkshire. But the um, yeah, I was thinking there's a lot here, and I think we'll probably. I'm, I think I'm probably just going to choose a place to dive in, and then we'll, there'll probably be lots of parts of this that will that will end up breaking down and getting into in a little bit more detail. Um, one of the things that jumps out to me immediately when I think about the success of a climax or an ending is that sometimes when we get that kind of feedback, um, we interpret it as meaning, okay, the, the climax needs to change, the ending needs to change, that's the piece that's wrong. Um, but for me, I think the success of a climax and the success of an ending, it largely rests or often largely rests on um, what's come before it. You know, so I think that in the example of um, Tito's uh, question, which he's had a reader um, sort of indicate that the, the beginning really spoke to him. The there was momentum. He enjoyed the middle and then. They didn't like the climax. He was expecting something else from the climax. I think there's lots of ways to interpret that feedback. And one of them is, well, what's the relationship between the two? What's the relationship between the component parts? So as well as reevaluating the climax, I'd also look at that relationship between climax and opening and look at the plot structures that are supporting the climax uh, to see if it can, if those structures can bear the weight of, of the climax. Um, so, so that's sort of my broad answer, um, and I can get into more detail about what those structures are and, and, and what I might uh, start by looking at. But, uh, you know, maybe, uh, Crystal, you want to jump in before I do that? Well, one thing, I mean, I absolutely agree. There was, uh, we did an event a couple months ago, and someone said, you know, I'm having the hardest time with my ending. I just can't write it. I just can't get myself excited about it. I just can't get it on the page. And I just thought there's something wrong earlier in the book. There's something off earlier in the book that needs to be fixed. I do want to ask one more question, I, though I do think that thinking about that relationship um, between what's earlier in the book and the climax is important. In terms of your own work, how, what is that relationship? Is it is it character-based? Is it emotional? Is it event? I mean, how have you figured that out? Yeah, so some... The, one of the things that I think is really fascinating about these questions, I've been listening to the to the whole series, and um, it seems that a lot of the time the questions are part process and part product. 
So on the one hand, it, the question is, how do you find your way to that to that right ending or that or that uh, climax that feels right? And then the other part of the question is, how do you land on what is the what is what is a right climax? What is the end result of that? For me, um, the the just to speak to the novel that's coming out, it was actually written as twelve short stories. So I actually had to find twelve endings. Um, and then one bigger ending. Um, and the actual process of that is not very helpful because I wrote it mostly in my MFA program and I worked really closely with Elizabeth McCracken. Who, and the, essentially the process was I wrote a draft, I handed it of a story, I handed it to Elizabeth. She said, not this ending. You know, this ending is not, not working, it's not good enough. So I would go back and write it try again, try again. And we sort of went, we just repeated that process multiple times until it got the, the ending got the McCracken seal of approval. And all the while I was kind of panicking because I realized that at some point I'm going to have to graduate from this MFA program and I'm no longer going to be able to rely on, um, that, on, on that McCracken seal of approval. So I was like, okay, I need like an Elizabeth McCracken of the mind, um, you know, <laughs> to be able to figure out how to do this for myself. And so what I yeah. started doing is paying attention to any patterns that I was seeing, both in the drafts that weren't hitting uh, the reader in the right way, what was the common factor there. And then when I did hit on something that really worked um, for a reader, in this, in this case it was Elizabeth, what's the common factor there? And um, for me, it, it ended up being something Something along the lines of, I was really trying to stick the landing. Um, so I was really kind of shooting for a flourish, for like a ta-da kind of moment. Um, and that was striking, I think, as too on the nose, too overwrought, too overdetermined, too, too symbolic, or it was, it was trying too hard uh, to call attention to itself as an ending. Um, and at first I thought that meant that Okay, so no flourishing then. You know, I've got to do something kind of quiet and muted and understated. I can't have that sort of big audacious ending that I was hoping for. And then I, I thought, mm, I don't really like that. I, I, I actually want to keep the, the energy of the thing that I don't quite know how to pull off yet, but that I'm trying uh, to, to pull off. And I found that writing beyond the ending, beyond the flourish, um, usually worked uh, worked much better and it was usually the answer so it it sort of served to sort of slightly de-emphasize the big thing the big you know capital B capital T big thing that I was trying to do um, and I usually found some sort of something slightly unexpected or um, an image or a moment or, or something re that was resonating throughout the story that had been sort of slightly subterranean um, coming through at the end. So that was that was my process with refining endings specifically. That's great. That's great. And what I like there and what, in terms of Dolores's question, when she says, I want to go back out with a bang, how do I knock the reader's socks off? Is, is I think, oh, she's going to try to make an ending that's too loud or too on the nose. I mean, there is the danger with that, with that kind of question. Um, okay. So, Christo, how about you? Ah, uh, so I, I think it depends. So I, I'm working on actually my sixth book. 
um, two of which have been previously published. Um, one will be published, and then I'm the I have one under contract, which I need to finish by April. And so, um, it it depends. I really think that if you have the ending at the beginning, it will make everything so much easier. And so, for my first novel, um, Feast of Sorrow, I had. I knew the ending because I knew how the main character in the book died because he's a historical figure. And so that made it real. Oh, well, not really easy, but it made it easier because I could plot towards that. How did this character get to that point? And there's, there's lots of school of thought that you need to write the ending first. You need to have the ending because then everything else can lead up to it. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think it's extremely helpful um, in my second novel, I had a sense of how I wanted it to end, and I knew it could and ended. Um, it ended in in one of two ways. So I knew it could end in one of uh, two two ways, and I had to figure out as the book progressed which of those endings would be more impactful. And it had to do with um, how somebody died in the book. Um, uh, the book I'm working in the Garden of Monsters and the book I'm working on now, I didn't know how it was going to end. And it was so much harder, like way harder. Um, I, it meant that I'm I'm kind of pantsing my way along and hoping that what I'm setting down is going to lead me towards that that big, huge climax that everybody thinks is, is the end all be all, right? Um, it's a lot harder. What I ended up doing with um, In the Garden of Monsters is I got to this ending and I wasn't sure if the ending really was it. Um, and I have these spreadsheets that I do with when I'm writing historical fiction, which my first um, two published novels were, you really need to plot out a timeline. You need to understand when things occur and how to how to connect the dots between history and um, and, and not reality. Right. So um, but um, I found that the timeline is it's it's not something I stick to too much when I'm writing the the books that are that are not historical but I kind of start there I kind of flesh a little bit of it out but what I find is most helpful is this spreadsheet that I put together that I use once I get like three-fourths the way in or even to the end and I just don't feel like it's working um and what it is is it plots everything um and I I actually really like the save the cat um, writes a novel um, book, um, and I because because it lays out specific plot lines. A lot of people don't like you know the formulaic sort of thing, but I find that what's helpful for me is that um, the book talks um, and the book's by Jessica Brody, and it's based off of another book called Save the Cat, um, which is about screenwriting. And in my mind. I want my book someday to be on the big screen. So having the idea of beats and milestones is really is really something I like. Um, and so for me, what the spreadsheet I put together does, which I just based on the book, so you can go get the book. Um, it has these very specific beats that you have to hit all along the way. And then when you get down to the climax, um, there's a few key things that are super helpful. Um, and this was kind of going back to the idea of like, how do I, how do I make that bang? How do I get there? And there's, there's two things to think about. There's an emotional or potentially an action oriented climax. And they're, they're similar in a lot of ways. Um, but the, the ending beats for this um, are like the bad guys are closing in. 
And that could also be on an emotional level. It doesn't have to actually be physical villains. Um, and then all is lost. Some, just when you think things can't get bad, they're going to get worse. Um, and then the dark night of the soul. And um, basically, what's the worst moment you can possibly have? And then um, I think it's, it's a Benjamin Piercy wrote the book. Um, Throw Thrill me. Um, yeah which um, I'm in a craft book writing club. And so we get together and we just read craft books um, every quarter and talk about it, which is amazing. And we read that recently. And he talks about this, this all is lost sort of scenario or in a different kind of way. And he mentions um, how Indiana Jones, um, there's a fear, the, the, there's a fear that the, the character has. And Indiana Jones has a fear of snakes. And his in the all is lost moment, or in where the where things are just the the when you think things can't get bad and not, they're already bad. He's like in a pit, uh, or he gets locked. Like lock, he in the first one, he like falls into a pit at the worst absolute possible time, and his fear of snakes comes true because it's all snakes, and he's got to figure out how to get out of that. And that is like the absolute worst scenario. Just when you think things can't get bad enough, they get worse. And so I've tried to kind of maintain that a little bit. Like, where is that? Like, that is the moment because if you can make that, just when things can't get worse, they actually get worse. Um, it ratchets it up so much. Um, and for me, that's been really helpful to kind of think about. And so that's, um, and then afterwards you have this, this dark night of the soul, the, oh my God, I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't think this can end anymore. And, and I don't think I can, I don't think this is, the character is just having this moment um, and then something occurs that, that, that makes it better. And then your climax becomes more satisfying. Um, and I found at least with the types of books that I'm writing, which happen to have a little bit more action in them, that's a good formula. So that's what I've done. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I particularly like um, Save the Cat and she, she details a five part finale, which sounds very prescriptive and very formulaic, but I oftentimes find that writers end their books too early. They actually end them on the climax and they don't really know what to do with the denouement or the unraveling of the book at the end. And so I do highly recommend that book for her five point finale, just to kind of get yourself to think about and, and to do some extra writing to see what you can put your characters through. Um, in terms of the all is lost moment, I think what's so important there is that you continue to escalate and you continue to escalate and you continue to escalate so that you have um, really put the character into a place where they're going to have to break. And even Aristotle talks about uh, a character breaking down and Aristotle believed in characters were simply a culmination of habits. Um, and so he believed in breaking that character down so that they can we get a glimpse into their true humanity and so that they can also build themselves up again and find out who they really are and become of who they really are. I mean, that's what you're searching for in the whole novel. And also a short story, you're looking for that moment, in my mind, when a character becomes who they really are and reveals to both themselves as well as the reader their, their humanity. Um, and so making sure that you've escalated enough and gone far enough, because I think a lot of writers don't go far enough in being, I guess, kind of vicious enough to their main character, because a lot 
lots of times their main characters are stand-ins for themselves. But once you have that all is lost moment, the dark night of the soul moment is so important because it allows the character to reflect on. Usually the character's alone. They're alone in the dark. <laughs> They're alone with themselves. That's why it's called the dark night of the soul. And so reflecting on oh my God, what happened? How did I get here? Who am I? Who do I want to be? How do I keep going? And it's this really important moment of interiority that sets up the entire third act um, and really allows us inside the character and who they are at the time. Um, one of my favorite uh, climaxes is an old novel, Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. And I'll always go back to this in terms of the, in terms of the climax. And I oftentimes think of the climax is the moment when your character either gains or loses what they have wanted all along in the oh, book. so true. And it can be something actually kind of quiet or it can be loud. So Kobo uh, will have heard me say this before. Um, in the story Araby by James uh, Joyce, you have a young boy who wants to be able to buy a trinket for an older uh, girl that he's fallen or thinks he's fallen in love with. And it's all he wants to the whole story. And he wants desperately to get to the Araby or to the market in order to purchase it. So we follow through the whole story of him trying to get there, trying to get there, just desperately trying to get there. He's poor. He doesn't have a lot of options. He, um, he doesn't have a lot of opportunities in his life. So when he finally gets to the Araby, they're actually, he gets there so late, they're beginning to shut down the whole market. They're turning off all the lights around him. Um, they're putting away their wares. And one of the women turns around kind of nastily to him and, and says, well, do you want anything in a very nasty voice? And he just looks at her and he says, no. And we're shocked at that moment, emotionally shocked, because this is what he's wanted the entire time. So that climax of that story is a single word, no. So what the character wants can be taken away from them uh, by outside sources, or it can be taken away from them by a decision that they themselves make. And the important part right there is that the character realizes, you know, the concrete goal of the whole plotting is he wants this trinket. But what he really wants is to grow up, to have freedom, to have money, to, to not live under his parents anymore, to be respected. All of that confusion of abstract emotional desires. And it's at the climactic moment when those abstract emotional desires of what the character really wants deep down, what they think that trinket's gonna get them, that rises up at that moment and allows the character to either make a decision or to choose to let go or to choose to continue to battle on. And a lot of that can re be revealed in the dark night of the soul, their understanding of what they really want and why they're continuing to fight. And that's what gives the emotional context to the piece that you're really, really gonna need. Um, yeah, and so in housekeeping, the daughter has wanting a home her entire life and has wanted a stand-in mother her entire life and what they do is at the at the climax is deciding to leave their home in order to find a home um and so it's actually both concrete and abstract in that way does any of this make sense Cowell? does that in terms of what mccracken was trying to get you to do and in terms of that final 
Yeah, well, uh, nodding emphatically through all of that, not least because most of, or all, all, all of um, everything I know about novel structure, I learned from you, Michelle. <laughs> and all the books I made you read, including Save the Cat. That's right. Yeah, we, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, I am a former incubee, so um, I really, um, I, I cannot, you know, pra praise the incubator highly enough for, for everything I learned that year. It, it's incredible and it still informs all of the work that I do to this day. It was really the bedrock of my understanding of how fiction worked and how to construct uh, novels and, and structures, fiction structures in general. Um, so yeah, but, so that all really resonates with me. I was thinking about uh, what you're calling the dark night of the soul and just thinking about my process. And I think for me, um, my brain really likes the sense of destination, which I think is why I sort of try to, to, st to stick the landing because that's what I'm kind of writing towards. And oftentimes that destination has actually been what I think you're referring to as the dark night of the, of the soul, that moment when the character's really stripped down and laid bare. And so often what happens in, uh, in my brain is that I go, okay, that's the, that's what I'm shooting for. And then I try to work backwards from there and go, what, how do I get them to that point? What are the steps? What is the chain of cause and effect that takes them every single step of the way so that when we do get to that real moment of breakdown, it feels real it feels warranted it feels necessary it feels like the only place we could have gone it doesn't feel melodramatic it doesn't feel overdone because we have taken all of the steps we need to get there so um i too have a a lot of spreadsheets um they, they're usually i sort of in, they're invented um and there are little bits of things i've learned from michelle things that i've sort of strategies that i've come up with um along the way cause and effect is something that i look at really really closely um, does every event in the novel lead to the next? Does every event in the novel cause the next event and the next event and the next event? That's one way to make the climax feel really warranted. Um, another one of the structures that I pay a lot of attention to that I was thinking about, Michelle, with um, what you were talking about with Araby, with housekeeping, and I think is also really relevant to Dolores's question. Dolores mentions that her protagonist uh, wants that their concrete desire, their, their big want is to get free. And that makes me think of the dramatic question, which is something I learned in the incubator. Um, so apologies if I'm just um, badly paraphrasing something you taught me, Michelle. Um, but the dramatic question is something I, I pay a lot of attention to. And that's um, a major question that is raised at the beginning of the novel and isn't answered until the end of the novel. Um, and it's often related to that uh, to that protagonist's desire. So for in the case of Dolores's work, the d dramatic question might be, does the protagonist get free or not? Um, and so that is something, it's a big question. It's a concrete question. We, we know by the end of the book whether or not that has been achieved. Um, and it's something that we can hang on to as a reader through all of the events, through all of the subplots, through all of the ups and downs, through the dark night of the soul, right till the very end to find out whether or not um, that actually does happen. And I think that, uh, and this is again is a paraphrase of, of a Michelle lesson. Um, <laughs> but often that dramatic question has a yes or no, an A or B answer. Do they get free? Yes or no. And sometimes the, the, the way 
to stick that landing, the way to end that book is to answer A or B. But sometimes that doesn't feel quite right. So if your instincts, if your guts are telling you that's not actually working, that feels too obvious or too contrived, then it's often um, about searching for that unexpected but inevitable option C. Um, something that has that is germane and organic and has risen organically from the story, that, but that isn't quite A or B. You know, it might be they do get free, but they have to sacrifice something huge in order to do so. Or they do get free, but it's not what they expected. It doesn't produce the um, the, the happiness or the joy. Or, or, or the sensations that they were that they were looking for. So, so that's another thing yeah. that I pay a lot of attention to. It's it's like the reason in the in the sun ending where they have gotten this house that they have been dreaming about and hoping for, and that they thought were going to solve all their problems, but we we find out that it's actually going to cause even further problems down the road. Um, and so what that what that actually means. Yeah, and, and that the answer of the question that that again comes at the climax point. That's not quite the ending yet, because the ending is about well, what does that then mean for them? Crystal, what do you think? Uh <laughs> I'm really just, struggling right now with my own it. ending. So this is I like was gonna ask you I see that's the question I wanted to ask you but I didn't know if you're ready. She said, before we started talking, yes, I'm dealing with my own, figuring out my own climax. Yeah, so my, um, I have a book that is, um, the first draft deadline is at the end of April. And I, this is one of the books that I have literally pantsed my way through from the beginning to the end. And I've never done that before. Usually I extensively plan parts of it at least. And I've not done that this time. And so, um, that is a lot harder I, in my mind because you're not working backwards from anything, you know, and I've thought like, should I write the ending first? Should I try that? And I'm not, I, I'm, I, there's so many things that need to occur in the beat in the first part that would affect that ending that I just don't know that, that I do know about. So I don't know if I can go there yet. So, um, this is the point where I pull out the spreadsheet and start to plot, well, what have I built up and what is, what's missing? Cause that's actually kind of key. What's missing. And I've had some beta readers who have read the first few chapters at this point and have said certain things like, you know, this character feels sort of flat. I'm not sure what her motivations are. She's not as active as she should be. Like things happen to her, but um, she's not affecting the change. Like, those are the kinds of things that I start to look for. Um, and, and going back to what Colwell was saying is the cause and effect. Um, Anne Hood actually teaches a, a really amazing um, editing um, session from time to time at the Muse um, and the Marketplace, um, Grub, um, Grub Street's um, writing conference. And that, when she teaches that, you sh anybody that's there should definitely take it because it's amazing. I've, I've taken, I think she's taught it at least three or four times and I've taken it every single time. Um, but she talks about, there's always a plus and minus at the, at every chapter. And, and that plus and minus can, can vary in a couple of ways. It can be like, what's the high in the chapter and the low in the chapter. And then how does the next chapter start with the high and the low? So like, you're, you're always shifting, like what the highs and the lows are in each chapter, but that plus and minus can also um, be specific to characters. What's a character's high in the chapter? Or what's the character's low in the chapter? And then how do you alternate that? 
So I actually go back and I try to figure out, okay, have I hit those? And, um, and then how can I, how can I continue that so that, um, that by the time you get there, that those highs are feeling really high and the lows are feeling really low. So you're to me that the, the weight of those pluses and minuses get bigger and bigger and bigger as you go through. Yeah. So that's kind yeah. of where I'm struggling. Um, like, um, I kind of know where it's going. Um, and, uh, I, I have found that I am really good at making things more and more and more complex, um, which is not always intentional, but turns out to be what the story generally needs to feel so weighty. Um, uh, the more problems I can throw at these characters, um, the, 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 the more difficult it is right now. I've, I've made the really rough decision to write about, um, the pandemic and include the pandemic and the beginning of the pandemic and how the characters are in the pandemic. And that has been the number of challenges that that throws at a plot is like, I, 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 you guys all lived through this, you know, how our plots worked. It was pretty bad. So, um, it's a, it's a pretty um, interesting way of kind of going about it. How many more problems can you throw at it and then then try to solve those um, and in a way that makes sense for the ending? I don't know. Well, if it's, kind of, it's kind of fascinating because in that way, um, we in some ways weren't allowed to escalate. We weren't allowed to exactly. move forward. So it became You're a problem. Stuck. I, You're stuck. So I go back to, um, I also go back to John Barth. He talks about the term complexified equilibrium um, in an essay that, that is called incre incremental perturbations or how to tell if you have got a plot or not. And he's, he's kind of tongue in cheek with a lot of it. That's why he's using language that actually isn't language. Complexified doesn't actually show up in the dictionary. Well, his stories think. are so, kind of like that anyway. So. I know. I know. So his... <laughs> He talks about complexified equilibrium. He, he references um, Romeo and Juliet. And what you're trying to reach at the end is a complexified equilibrium or a new, basically, status quo. So at the beginning of your book, you have an unstable ground situation or unstable status quo. And at the end, hopefully, you have a new unstable ground situation or a new complexified equilibrium. That means that the characters have now reached a place that they are going to exist in probably for a while. Um, that's what gives it the finished feeling. And yet everything is not all fixed. Um, everything is still unstable. Um, and that's what he calls complexified. So at the end of Romeo and Juliet, obviously quite a lot has happened, but we've actually reached a new complexified equilibrium in which powers um, have changed, lives have changed. And we're gonna be able to sit there for a little while. And I think in the chat, people have talked about why well, like endings that are inconclusive. That is that is more of a conclusive ending because killing everyone off is one way to make a conclusive ending. However, we don't quite know how the families are going to function after that. And so um, you can get your character to a new complexified equilibrium to a point where the reader can project beyond the ending generally how we think the character is going to do or what we think the character is going to do. Um, and that gives that kind of inclusivity um, that can be helpful uh, without you telling us exactly what's going to happen. Um, it gets our imaginations going. Um, and yet it still feels like an ending because the character has reached a new equilibrium. I also think there's another trick um, 
that Lynn Barrett has talked about, um, and she talks about Hansel and Gretel. And if you look at that story, you see that all the characters in that story flitch, switch power. So um, you have the um, the mother and uh, the the new wife, the stepmother, has all the power at the beginning. Um, the father is kind of weak, and he has the next level power under her. And then you have Hansel, the boy, and then you have Gretel has the least power. At the end of the story, Gretel has all the power. Hansel, she's had all the ideas and all the brainstorming. She's the smart one, so she's gotten them all through everything. So Gretel's got the most power. Then Hansel, the father's groveling at home, just waiting for them to bring the golden food wherever they can. He's acting like a child. And the, um, the stepmother is either dead or missing or something. We're never told what has happened to the stepmother. And, and the hint is, is that she, in, in some ways, was the witch in the forest that gets killed. So notice that you switch that. And if you watch Succession, and I'm not going to give it away, but if you watch Succession all the way to the end, you'll see that they have done exactly the same thing. What they've done to find their ending is simply looked at all the characters' power dynamics from the beginning, and they've turned them on their head at the end. And that's how they reach their ending. Um, it's a fun little trick um to look at so that's something you can borrow and i also think about i mean i want to go back to something that koa said about really finding the emotional truth of a character you know i think about the novel the friend by sigrid nunez um at the beginning she doesn't want this dog and she's missing her friend um by the end of the book the idea of what the word friend actually means has been changed and in that way the character has been changed. Um, so it is it is implicitly told to us. It's in the subtext, but you can read it, the ending like that. And I think there's a famous story by Amy Hempel called The Cemetery Where Al Jolson is Buried. She's dealing with a friend who is dying from cancer, and she is so scared of this happening that she actually leaves the friend's side. She can't handle being at the hospital with her. And the whole story is told in jokes. Um, and little little teeny stories that aren't too serious. And it seems like she's not sad at all. There's no grieving. There's no uh, sentimentality at all. But the very last word of the story is the word grief. So if you, and, and that use of the word that's been resisted the entire story, landing at the very last word of the story hits you like a boulder. So I do recommend looking at that as well. That's Amy Hempel's The Cemetery Where Al Jolson is Buried. And I'm sure you can find that online. Um, Koa, are there any books when you think about this really hit it for me? Any books that got that ending or crystal? Any books that got that um, climax or ending? Because I asked Koa the like, question. This is She's seven like, a.m. for me. I know. <laughs> well, I can only I remember the last. I I can only remember the last book I read. That's just how I yeah, yeah, <laughs> I like yeah, forget yeah. all of the other plots. Um. The the one that I thought came very close that I've read most recently was um, The Vast of Wilds by Lauren Graff. Um, the whole, it, it's really kind of remarkable, very kind of paired back structure in, in terms of protagonists having a, a very concrete want and we're sort of following that. It's a protagonist who's um, run run away um, from a an early colonial settlement and is trying to survive in the wilds of America. And the whole book is about is she going to find safety? Is she going to reach the the Frenchman that she's heading for in the north, or is she going to die in the attempt? Um, and it it does that question is answered, 
But again, she takes this route C, um, where she, and the way that she does that is by having um, the girl at the very end of the novel is very sick and we don't know if she's going to make it or not. And then she has this projection where she zooms up above her body in her imagination and then imagines the next several decades of her life. And that felt like that was Groff's way of going, I'm not just going to give you A or B, here is C, which is this whole imagined future um, that she may or may not have. Great, great. Crystal? Um, I would say um, at least one of the books that the ending impacted me the most and that I is um, Shark Heart by Emily Habeck, um, which came out last year. And it was, it, this book was just absolutely stunning. It's about um, it, this couple that just get married and then the husband becomes afflicted with this this um mutation and instead of i i liken it so i had i had cancer last summer so for me like the book probably really hit home um and um i likened these mutations kind of like cancer and instead of cancer people turn into animals and um they start to turn so her husband starts to turn into a shark a great white shark it's one of the worst mutations you can possibly have and um, lots of people have mutations and um, and so this story of this woman um, who's in love with her husband and she's watching him and helping him deal with becoming a great white shark. And then he's released into the ocean at some point. And just the way that that book, I, I can't really ruin the ending for you, but I, it just the whole way through, you're just like, like on the edge of your seat. Like, how is this going? How can this possibly be anything good? And it's not anything good, but the ending is just good. Like all of it was so good. Um, this really tragic story was just absolutely one of the most memorable I've read in, the, in years. Yeah, wonderful. And I think also that's the difference between the world story and what happens in the world, like a pandemic or the end of the world or whatever, and what happens to the person and what happens inside the person. And, and you can shift it that way into to growth or goodness or, or something to take away um even if the world itself is is dying um there are two different things and you can layer them on each other in a wonderful way okay we're gonna shut up i've been i told these guys we're going way too long um everyone you can go to our go to our substack page seven a novelist.substack.com to figure out what we're doing um Cobalt, any final words you've got for breaking through writing obstacles uh, yeah, so I've been listening to the series um, all month, and I've been listening to uh, all, all of the uh, problems and solutions that have been um, served. And the one thing that kept re jumping out to me was um, what I really needed to do was to tune into what my particular brain responds to and is motivated by, uh, especially when we're talking about process and how do you sit down in the chair and, and get the writing done. So building practices and rituals and strategies around what your brain needs to be excited, coaxed, flattered, pandered to um, in, order, in order to get the work done and to try not to get too hung up on what other people do and what works for other people. So take what is useful from what Crystal and I have said, from what, from what you, Michelle, have said, from what everyone on the podcast has said. Um, but if it doesn't work for you, that doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong or that you're not a real writer. Um, it just means that your brain needs something else. And for me, um, figuring out how to have a writing practice and a writing process has really just been about 
really honing in on what do I need? What does my brain get excited by? You know, what does my brain feel motivated by? What strategies and techniques work for me specifically? Excellent. Excellent. Crystal? Um, for me, I think, um, I, I don't, this may not work for everybody, but I, I find that if you're thinking that things aren't working, that going back and just either sitting down and writing out a summary or even putting everything on a spreadsheet. Like one of the things that I look for on my spreadsheet if, is, did I satisfy in each chapter what every character wants and what every character needs? Um, and then did they get what they want or what they needed? Um, and at some point they need to get what they think they, they, they don't want, they, they can't get what they think they want. They need to actually get what they need. And so how am I playing with that all the way through? Um, writing that down chapter by chapter has been super helpful for me. Okay, thank you both so much for your time and energy here. Everyone, they've got new books out coming soon. Uh, so be sure to look for those. And I hope everyone is able to get back to their desks and trying to enjoy the process a little bit today. Good luck and good writing. <laughs>